That will be Thanksgiving. So I've actually got a sense of, you know, I don't know if I've ever done a Thanksgiving message and really felt like we needed to. As a matter of fact, I kind of feel like I maybe need to be reminded of this next year uh, that, that what we're going to talk about today is so important that I think we need to visit it at least on an annual basis to posture our hearts in the category of Thanksgiving. So the title today is Thanksgiving, the ingredient you're supposed to put in everything. Let me back up to that word thanksgiving. Uh, For us to benefit from it biblically, we're going to have to realize that it's not just the title of a day. It's two words that get put together that describe an attitude. But for us, when we say thanksgiving, immediately in my mind, you know, shades of orange and brown, turkeys, some pilgrim guy wearing a costume uh, kind of a thing. That comes to mind. Well, listen to this about Thanksgiving Day from... McClintock and Strong Encyclopedia. Thanksgiving Day is an annual religious festival observed in the United States. Most people would not know it had any religious roots. It owes its origin to the desire of the Puritans for greater simplicity in the forms of worship of the established church and and a purpose not to celebrate any of the numerous festival days observed by that church. An occasional day of Thanksgiving has been recommended by the civil authorities of Europe. And there's a great history of days of Thanksgiving that have been appointed by various governments, particularly in our country. Before the adoption of an annual Thanksgiving Day, we find mention of several appointed for special reasons. After the first harvest at Plymouth in 1621, Governor Bradford sent four men out fowling that, quote, they might, after a more special manner, Rejoice together. In July 1623, the governor appointed a day of thanksgiving for rain after a long drought. And the records show a similar appointment in 1632 because of the arrival of supplies from Ireland. This is also a record of the appointment of days of thanksgiving in Massachusetts in 1632, 33, 34, and 37, 38, and 39. And then in Plymouth in 1651, 68, 80, and 89, and 90. In several other places where the government has said this is going to be a special day of appointed thanksgiving. Now, since those special times have been set apart both by presidents and governors until 1864, when the present practice was adopted of a national annual thanksgiving, custom has fixed this time and day for Thursday, the last Thursday in November. Now, I find it interesting as, as you look at this whole idea of thanksgiving that in history, There were days that were appointed to draw attention to the activity of thanksgiving. When something significant happened in in the colonies or in the life of people, uh, the government would step in and would promote the idea that let's pause and be thankful for this. Um, I think it's interesting that, that we need to have somebody tell us to do that. Even throughout history, somebody needs to step in and tell us, hey, hey, you, Make sure you're thankful. Okay? You know, when you're a little kid, your parents have to tell you to be thankful. There's just something about being thankful that doesn't come naturally to us. Have you seen this uh, Citibank commercial about thank you? They have picked up on something that uh, really is kind of obvious when you think about it, that we live in a society that, that doesn't really walk in sincere gratitude very often. The commercial has a couple of different ones, but there's one where there's a lady in a grocery store. She walks up to some other lady, and they're picking out fruit or something, and she she walks over and kind of puts her hand on her tummy and says, you must be having a boy. 
And, of course, the lady kind of responds to her like, huh, I'm not pregnant. <laughs> the other woman is left, you know, reeling. I don't know if you've ever been in that moment, but that would obviously be an awkward moment to live in. So her way of just undoing the awkwardness in that moment was just to turn and say, thank you. And, and they picked up on something here that that is so shocking. Like, you said thank you to me. And this other woman just melts. She forgets about the offense that you just call me fat. But all of a sudden now she's fine with the whole ordeal. And she's like, come here. And she's hugging on the lady and, because she said thank you. And it highlights the fact that you and I live in a society where sincere thank you is a shock. People just don't do it anymore. And the danger for us as believers is we live in that society. And that society it tends to be a weight that pulls down the testimony of God in our own lives. The, the, the people of God ought to be extremely thankful people. That dynamic of thanksgiving ought to characterize our personality. That we walk around with an attitude of thanksgiving all the time. Unfortunately, even though Thanksgiving is appointed, you know, this week, folks all over this country are going to get together and celebrate Thanksgiving. How many of you know that there will be very little giving of thanks taking place? You need to think about all the gatherings you've been in for Thanksgiving. There's, there's great food. There's grandma's recipes. There's some great stuff that you're going to have. There's uh, time to be with family. But, you know, really being thankful, taking a day and stopping and pondering gratitude thankfulness and, and just mulling over all the things that would cause us to have a thankful heart. That probably won't occur in 95% of the gatherings that will take place on Thursday. That's a real danger that I think all of us need to be aware of. Somewhere along the way, I don't know what year that was, what, 1864? The government came in and said, this is great. A day of thankfulness. We should do this every year. So year after year after year after year after year, people do this Thanksgiving thing. How many of you know that when you repeat stuff over and over and over again, at some point here you run the danger that it loses its meaning? And that's true for Thanksgiving, but let us be sobered this morning and take some notes. For us as believers, a lot of what we do, we do over and over and over and over and over again, don't we? And we should, because the Bible encourages us to do that. You know, we meet together on a weekly basis. In this meeting, in other meetings, we meet differently. This meeting can very quickly become something that we just do. And in the same way that we can pull up the Thanksgiving Day on Thursday, watch the Macy's Parade, eat a whole bunch, be stuffed and fall asleep watching the Dallas Cowboys, and that's Thanksgiving, uh, we can, we can kind of do the same thing when it comes to all of what Christianity is supposed to be about. We can have great external participation with a deficient heart motive behind it. And what God's wanting to stir up is not some external thing where, okay, technically we say thank you. But a heart that's overflowing with gratitude. So that when it has the opportunity to express thank you, boy, it's all over that. And, you know, that's going to affect all kinds of dynamics in our lives. Well, this morning, I want to help us to avoid the pitfall of ingratitude and to realize the importance, I think the critical importance, that thankfulness and developing an attitude of, of thankfulness in our lives plays for our well-being spiritually. Charles Spurgeon, he said, Despondency and murmuring will hamper you in all your efforts to glorify Christ.
That's that's enough right there for some of us. We could we could have an altar call right now. Despondency and murmuring. The, the, you know, the thing that concerns me as I even read that quote is for some of us as Christians, we've almost acted as though we're all right. Even though we're despondent and murmuring about things on a fairly regular basis. As though I'm really going to go on in God. But, you know, I just sometimes I just kind of, you know, I get an attitude about some things. I get worked up. I you know, start complaining, get, get despondent. Well, I agree with Mr. Spurgeon. Despondency and murmuring will hamper you in all your efforts to glorify Christ. But to maintain an inward spring of thanksgiving is one of the best ways to keep yourselves in spiritual health. And as I begin to study this a little bit, considering we're going to look at several scriptures about Thanksgiving, I kind of would liken Thanksgiving to bringing an attitude that's going to bring the other attitudes of our lives in line correctly so that we can walk in the purpose of God. You know, there are certain attitudes that are incompatible with Thanksgiving. You can't just be seething with anger and mad and be thankful all at the same time, can you? You can't be depressed and be thankful at the same time. See, certain other attitudes have to give way for thankfulness. So if I'm going to jump into my life with thankfulness, other stuff's got to move out the way. And so in, in one regard, I think thankfulness serves as it's almost like a reset button on my life. If you're here this morning, you're just kind of weighed down by things, or you're just kind of <clears throat> angry at stuff going on, you're frustrated by things, and you were to stop and I were to say, Let's let's start expressing some thanks right now. <laughs> Something's got to give, doesn't it? All right. Thank you. You know, he just that works for Clint Eastwood, but no one else. Uh, to really be thankful, something in our heart's going to have to move out of the way, and something else is going to have to move in that place. Look, John Piper says God has appointed gratitude. As one of the essential guardians of your soul. Evidently, we are fair game for the devil when we don't abound with thanksgiving. Unless the song of thanksgiving is being sung in our hearts, the enemy outside will deceive his way into the city of our soul. And the enemy sympathizers within will make his job easy. Those enemy sympathizers are just indwelling sin. Make his job easy. So for the sake of your own safety, strive to fill your heart with thanksgiving. Guard yourselves with gratitude. Now let's look in the scriptures to see how the Bible encourages the attitude and activity of thankfulness in our lives. And I, I use this illustration certainly as apropos this week. Is If the Bible were a cookbook, and I know many of you this week, will, you'll pull out cookbooks, you'll pull out grandma's recipe for something that you're going to be cooking special ingredients are going to go in there you're going to whip up that ultimate dish for everybody to enjoy well if the bible were a recipe book and it was prescribing to us how to handle this situation how to handle that situation how to face this situation and there were ingredients that were called upon to be put in those things and there really kind of are life really kind of has these components to it one of the things that you'd find is common in every recipe is thankfulness all over the Bible. God kind of introduced, sometimes he just kind of slips it in. It's kind of like, 
And here's the major features in all, by the way. Thankfulness kind of gets slipped in there. So if you did a taste test, there'd be thankfulness in everything God says that you and I are to be about. Let me look at two avenues of this. First, the umbrella of a thankful attitude. This would be the big picture that touches everything about us. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 18. <clears throat> in everything, give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus in Everything, give thanks. Now, I don't know if everything is a tough category for you or not. But if you start thinking, there's got to be a few things that come to mind that make being thankful a little bit of a challenge. But yet God's mandate, we're going to see it in several places in Scripture, is that an overarching principle in our life for every situation is that I'm going to have a thankful attitude in it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Listen, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Always giving thanks for all things. So this is starting to get all inclusive. There's starting to be no categories in our lives that we would deem good, bad, horrible, tragic. Nothing escapes. Always giving thanks for all things. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do. So here's a, a broad sampling of everything that goes on in our life is to contain thanksgiving in our attitude. That's supposed to be in me no matter what. When, when morning comes and the new day dawns. How many of you guys are morning people? You just, just love get up, get going. Let me see your hands. Morning people. All you morning people who love the morning. Wow, there's not many in this service. <laughs> you know, it's dawning on me right now. <laughs> at least you're honest. That's good. I didn't catch that at all. The first service, man, all these hands went up in the first service. <laughs> That's why I'm looking around. I was like, y'all didn't hear me. How many of y'all are not morning people? Wow! Uh, how many of you hate the people who raise their hands the first time? <clears throat> Just hate people that get up in the morning like, Ah! Oh, a new day. Uh, I am not a morning person, so I don't know if there's ever been a day that I've ever gotten up with. Ah! Oh, a new day. I have to fight rolling over again. Well... In that moment, for all of us non-morning people, thankfulness. We're to actually greet the day with an attitude of thankfulness in our hearts. When we get about the day's activities, you know, whatever, getting ready in the morning, getting your stuff, getting going, getting on the highway, getting caught in traffic. Right? There's real moments for this. I'm sitting in traffic. Okay? In everything. Always. For all things. Giving thanks. Whatever you do. 
Sitting in traffic? Well, that's what it says in everything. Always giving thanks. So even in that, there's somehow I can give thanks in that setting. Uh, going to work, getting there, or going to school, and facing those people at work or at school, those difficult individuals who just kind of make your job or your activity at school just a miserable place to be in all things. Always giving thanks. That project that you're working on, those pressures that you're under to meet deadlines and get this thing done. Always giving thanks for all things. What about, what about challenging seasons that we go through in life? I mean, there's some seasons. Sometimes we're in great seasons of success sometimes. Those are great times. Those are easy to be thankful. Right? Jobs going the right way, getting a raise. Um, you know, an unexpected refund comes in the mail. Woo, Lord, thank you. This is great. What about when an unexpected bill comes in the mail? You know, the same attitude in all things. So somehow there's something in even the bad thing that's happening that, that I'm supposed to have something that lets me go, thank you. Even in that moment. You know, we, we, we love when things go our way. But in reality, you and I know, we live in lots of seasons of our lives where things don't go our way. I mean, you can, you can live through financial seasons. Everybody here could stand up right now and tell a financial story of how it didn't go their way. There's not a person in this building. Even the wealthiest person would say, well, you know, I didn't always have money. You know, when I went to college, you know, we, we, we just put flour and water together and ate it, you know. Uh, everybody's got one of those stories. So at some point, there's a little season of your life where it's just not going my way. In that season, thank you. An attitude of thanksgiving is to permeate who we are. What about, I mean, difficult times when your health, a season of poor health, that's just very distracting. It's taking the edge off of kind of who you are. You're running after things hard in your life and then health issues come and set in. Next thing you know, You've kind of forgotten about those things. It's just getting through today. It's getting through the pain. It's getting through the, the feelings that you're going through. In that time, we're called to have an attitude of thanksgiving in that time as well. Relational problems. You know, if, you, if, you're, if you're married to a real person, at some point, your, your relationship goes through some difficulty and some strain. And, you know, even to the point of some folks have gone through the fear of, are we going to make it through this? Is this going to end our relationship? I don't know how much longer I can stand this. Or we've, we've even gone beyond it. We're divorced now. And, you know, those are realities. But, you know, the Bible means what it says. Even in that category, in everything, give thanks. Always, whatever you do, give thanks in that you know, I know right now we're approaching, rapidly approaching a wonderful time of the year of holidays, uh, being together with family member and friends and celebrating together, remembering. Uh, for some folks, this isn't a wonderful time of the year. It's the most difficult time of the year for them. Um, it's a time that highlights their aloneness. They're not feeling like there's... There's people around them sharing and participating in life with them. It's a very difficult period for them. For some, it's a, it's a 
great reminder of tragic loss that somebody who's dear to them, who's walked with them, who they love, they've lost. And maybe this is the first Thanksgiving, first Christmas that you'll be without that person this year or maybe second or third. And you just it's still the sting of that is there. You know, the Bible's still speaking to you. Somehow, God wants us to be able to be thankful in that time as well. In the Bible, I put some other verses here that beyond just the umbrella of these things, there's the specific encouragements for a thankful attitude. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. With thanksgiving. It kind of just kind of stirs that little ingredient in, just kind of tosses that in there. In the midst of anxiety... Right? Anxiety is a neat word, but anxiety is not a neat experience, is it? Anxiety, I mean, it's, it's a tormenting experience. You know, it's part physical, it's part mental, it's, you know, it works up and you're thinking about things and stuff's coming at you. Here comes life, here comes, oh, you just get overwhelmed. You start feeling anxious. The Bible says, in that moment, in the midst of your anxiety, walk through it with thanks. Introduce this ingredient into that moment. Colossians 4.2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, that may sound like it's easy to do. Well, you know, you're praying. It's easy to be thankful when you're praying. No, it's not. When do most of us really get serious about praying? When everything's just going our way, right? Clear sailing. I mean, just the refund checks are just flying in. We just can't believe how much things are just going our way. And we just start crying out to God. When we pray the most is when things are not going our way. When we feel scared. When we feel overwhelmed. When there's too much problems going on. And sometimes when we crawl into our prayer closet, the first word out of our mouth is not thank you. It's words full of fear. Full of questions. Full of anger sometimes. And sometimes, quite honestly, what we do in that moment really doesn't even qualify for prayer. It's really just worrying out loud with God being the audience. <laughs> That's not really prayer. You know, coming in before the throne of God's grace, where we're supposed to obtain mercy and help in a time of need, you don't come in and just start kind of throwing up all over God about, you know, like, like God, I just need to make you Do you know this happened? And then he said this, and then they left, and then, and I can't, and... And somebody asks you, did you pray about it? I've been praying. <laughs> Nothing's happening. Well, can I just help you? That's not prayer. You know, there's, there's the throne of God's grace and there's the complaint department. You went to the wrong window. You're over here complaining about your life. That's not prayer, even if God's the audience. Ephesians 5, verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So this is all over the place. And I think the reason why it needs to be all over the place is if you don't cultivate it all over the place, you won't be it hardly at all. You point all the days you want during the year. If you're not cultivating an attitude of thankfulness, looking for moments where I can be thankful in my heart, express thankfulness, then it's just not going to happen. You know, in our conversation, this is a verse about our conversation with one another. You know, many times, 
many times conversations just kind of get this negative thing, just kind of like, I don't know, it's a steering current. It's kind of pop in. We almost can greet one another in a real negative way by highlighting the junk that's going on in our lives, highlighting the junk in the news. Uh, you know those, you know, you watch the news broadcast, right? It begins with this serious, serious news, horrible, tragic, terrible, you know, throwing a little sports and weather there. And then at the end, there's some, some kind of light little fluffy story, right? You know, uh, look, and triplet bunnies were born in Iowa. You know, they kind of finish with that kind of a thing. Nobody kind of engages each other with that story. You know, you don't walk up into the office the next day and say, did you hear triplet bunnies in Iowa? I'm so thankful. You know, you start with some news item, some bad political situation, some controversial thing. It's like something in us just loves to run towards a negative. And, and some people are more prolific at this than others. And I, and I want to highlight that because you need to be aware if you are. You're not stirring up thankfulness in other people. If you're one of those people that just loves to be melodramatic, focus on all the negative, update everybody on how bad things really are. And some of that, quite honestly, I think some of that for people is, is laziness. It's like you've never learned to communicate. And you got around people who all they knew how to do was communicate negative things. Um, I'm trying to think carefully how to say this. <clears throat> There are times when I have to interpret for my wife what a relative, particular relative in particular, is saying because she can sound rather negative in her exchange. And you know, there's been times when I have to say, well, honey, that's just kind of her way of saying hi. You know, it's kind of this negative. Well, you didn't do this or do that. Mom says hi. <laughs> you know, it's kind of that, that thing that's just the way kind of you open up the conversation with that sort of thing. And we do that with each other. And it's laziness. It doesn't serve other people. If what comes out of me is not something that's going to provoke thanksgiving and provoke godly response, promote faith in people, then I, I need to be careful that I might just need to be quiet until I learn how to say some other things. Right? And just kind of slipping all that stuff in. <coughs> well, go back to Mr. Spurgeon. Despondency and murmuring will hamper you in all your efforts to glorify Christ. But to maintain an inward spring of thanksgiving is one of the best ways to keep yourselves in spiritual health. So how can you and I maintain an inward spring of thanksgiving? Genuine, an inward spring, not just to going through the motions of, all right, tell them thank you, thank you. You know, that, that doesn't cut it with God. God's looking for an offering of thanks, an inward spring of thanks that's rising up out of my heart because it's in my heart. Which means, how do, I, how do I get thankfulness to be something that's resonating in me? And that's the next point. The content, content of our contemplation. Contemplation must restore perspective. You cannot be truly thankful without having a right perspective of your circumstances. When you look out at the, the snapshot of your life, whatever circumstance you're in, if what you're experiencing is uh, complaining and murmuring or despondency, fear, frustration, anger, the only way you can sufficiently arrive at looking at your life with those kinds of attitudes is to remove God from the frame and put him over here. You have to look at 
your life without God. Now, if you put some caricature of God in there, which is often what we do, you might as well have removed him. God's going to be God. He needs to be how he says he's God in the frame. But if you're angry, frustrated, complaining about life and about where you are, and you're looking at your situation through that kind of a lens, God is not in place correctly. The one significant feature about your life is you're looking at life with God somewhere over here, but not as a central player. And there's no way you can develop an attitude of thanks in that. You know, we need to be careful when we read these passages in everything. Give thanks. Does that mean we're thankful for sin? We're thankful for suffering uh, in and of themselves. Nothing else attached to them. Just I'm just thankful for all the sin. You know, all the tragedy that's happening in the world today. I'm, just, I'm thankful for it. Isn't that what I'm telling you to do? Let's just be thankful for uh, people just losing a loved one, just like that. And so aren't we just thankful for that? And that's actually not what the Bible is encouraging. And if you know anything about God, you know God's grieved over sin. So we're not celebrating it with an attitude of thankfulness. But there's something else that needs to be in the picture with that thing. And that causes me to be able to be thankful. I See, I need to be able to see something good in that picture in order to be thankful. Otherwise, I'm just using words. Nobody's thankful for those things that are genuinely going to harm them. And I don't think biblically you're called to be. You're supposed to look at your life and see, okay, this is tragic. And all it will ever be is tragic. It's going to wreck my life and nothing good can ever come from it. But I'm thankful for it. That doesn't work. To genuinely be thankful, I think you and I genuinely need to see good in the picture. And so I want to just cover two things today with us that are going to help us, I believe, to truly be thankful. And there's more than two, I'm sure, but I'm just going to narrow the focus to these two. First, to truly be thankful, we must embrace sovereignty. We must embrace a doctrinal understanding of God's workings in human history and an understanding that God is sovereign in the events of our lives. Now, you'll know this if you're here for any length of time. We like to throw around these doctrinal words um, and with actually with no apology for that at all, because the Bible throws them around. The Bible presents concepts that are rich, rich doctrinal components. That it, when it comes to addressing our lives and looking into the picture frame of here's what my experience is right now. Here's what I'm going through. I'm depressed. I'm struggling. Uh, I'm going through a bad relationship period right now in my life. And I look at that. You know, I need the rich doctrine of the sovereignty of God to even see that correctly. Because if I don't have an understanding of the sovereignty of God, then I'm going to lose a major ability to see any good going on in that scenario and any thankfulness. But yet the Bible's calling me to be thankful in all things because I do believe it's supposed to function under the sovereignty of God. First Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The only way this scripture is possible it's when we see God fulfilling his purpose in our lives, even in suffering or loss. If God's at work, and I know God's at work, and my picture moves from some sense of, I don't see God in this at all. I just don't see God here. 
and I see God in the frame of this experience, busy, postured with activity in his heart, in all that's going on. I feel differently now about those circumstances than if I don't see God in them. And I can be thankful if I'm seeing God in it in a way that I cannot if I don't see him in it. Leon Morris says, as worldly people go on their way, they meet with some things that make them happy and some about which they complain bitterly. They conceive of life as a matter more or less of chance. Accordingly, they welcome those workings of chance which favor their purposes and object to those which do not. Now, before we get more spiritual than we really are, just describing any of us? And Mr. Morris is uh, reading not just those lost people who are just completely clueless. He's reading the mail of many Christians, isn't he? And many of us are kind of driving along through life. We've lost sight of something about God, but life keeps coming. And we're trying to interpret. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And then we look through the lens of our, our desires, our purposes. Well, it looks like it would work in the favor of my understanding of how to get to my established goals that are in my heart. That thing over there, however, looks bad. It's not going to get me there. It's not going to do that for me. How many of you know there's many times that God's doing something in your life that you simply don't understand? That it's a great thing. That it's working for your good. But in my limited understanding and frame of thinking, that simply looks bad. It's emotionally painful. It's, it's making me feel awkward. My, my future's become uncertain in a category. and I, I mean, I've got anxieties. That can't be a good thing. It can be a great thing. I may just need to see it through a little different lens. Where am I here? But when anyone comes to see that God in Christ has saved him, everything is altered. Now it is apparent that God's purpose is being worked out. I love the way he says that because it assumes that you already know a lot when you read this passage. This is a little quote. It assumes that you know for you to even be saved, it is obvious that God's purpose is being worked out. The mere fact that you even have a clue which way is up spiritually is a demonstration that God has been working on your behalf and His purposes are being fulfilled. The fact that you are here this morning with any interest at all in who God is and what He has for your life ought to be convincing evidence that there's a sovereign God who's been messing with you. Because you're not here because of you. You're here because of Him. And He saved you by His grace. So it is apparent that God's purpose is being worked out and the evidence of this becomes clear in the believer's own life and in the lives of those about him. This leads to the thought that the same loving purpose is being worked out even in those events which the believer is inclined not to welcome at all. When we come to realize that God's hand is in all things, we learn to give thanks for all things. See, if you don't grasp sovereignty, there will be certain elements in your life. Be careful not to run off on this topic. It's too big. Um, there will be certain elements in your life, and they usually tend to be painful elements, difficulty, that we perhaps can't see the immediate good of it. 
We can't fill that in. We can't make that leap to where that, that good's going to come into our life. We tend to somehow lose God's sovereignty in this, and we almost disassociate God from that activity. And let me tell you, I think we do some of this out of good motives. We're just ill-informed, and we haven't thought this out very carefully. It's almost as though, well, that's a tragic thing that happened. Tragic thing is bad. Okay, bad through my limited understanding. And if it happened, then I can't possibly understand how God could have been involved with that at all. So what we want to do is almost we want to let God off the hook. God, I don't want to, I don't want to make you guilty by association. So somehow this is, this is not your will. This is not what you want. But sins in the world and stuff like this happens. And we somehow remove God from this thing. Can I, can I ask you to really think through that position for a moment? Because what you've just done is you have, you have signed on. If you really think about it, you've signed on for a life full of anxiety. Because now you have components of life. Because you've created a component of life where God wasn't, God wasn't there when that happened. And you kind of feel good about that because I want to be able to believe that God is good. And that was bad. So God could not have been there. He was, he was in Bermuda that day. Well, the problem with that is, does God have any other trips to Bermuda scheduled? Is he going to be unavailable for you in another event that you don't know is right around the corner, about to happen to you? A bad thing that you'd hope God was going to be involved in every day understanding the script of your life. Bad and good, God sovereignly in it. And somehow if we take comfort in the idea that, well, if it's bad, then, then, then God's distant from that. How does that bring any comfort to me? I am not comforted by the idea that I have a God who takes a break. I have a God who has circumstances that he's not all over them in my life. They're outside of him being all over them. And if it happened once, it could happen again and again and again. And now I've got a whole series of events in my life that I can't explain because I don't really know where God was in this thing. Or if it didn't happen to you, it's happened to somebody you know. And so now you live in the anxiety of, well, if it happened to them, it could happen to me. I could go through that. You see, if God's not sovereignly in those things, then you and I have not created a recipe for comfort. I would much rather know God was in that thing. He was in it in a way that I'm having a hard time understanding, but he was in it. He was all over that thing. That thing did not occur by some freaky accident that God didn't have any control or say so over. I am grateful that I have a God who's in charge of the accidents. Because if I didn't, I mean, look, I mean, I've got children, man. There's stuff that happens. You know, we, you know, we live in a sense of, you know, an accident could happen. I'm not in charge of those accidents. See, I can't control those things. They generate fear in our lives. But I need to know there's a sovereign God who's in control of that kind of stuff. And that nothing is going to happen in this universe that God is somehow not involved with for a purpose. And if I know God's in it for a purpose, now I can feel differently about my whole life. What a sad thing that sin got the upper hand and we have the idea that that suffering was purposeless. Absolutely not. There is a God who is involved. And that issue, that loss, that tragedy... God is in it in a sovereign way. And, you know, here's the one thing I want to put a break on here is 
I don't think the Bible is asking us to completely understand how God is in these things. That's where I think we get tripped up in this whole topic of sovereignty. The Bible doesn't explain a lot about how is God involved in it. It just says he's sovereign over them. Let me give you a few verses here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. That is a sovereign statement. That is a sovereign decree. There is a God who is working all things after the counsel of his will. Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. May we not put some kind of leash on God. Think that he is bound and restricted. God God is sovereign over his creation. Daniel chapter 4. This is an amazing passage because it's spoken by a king named Nebuchadnezzar who's just come back in from being crazy. He's just been wandering out in the fields, impersonating animals, and eating the grass of the fields. So this guy knows what it is to be nuts. He also knows what it is to be in his right mind. Listen to what he says. But at the end of that period, period of Nebuchadnezzar's craziness, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. Now you're about to hear what I believe, actually, this is one of my favorite proclamations in the whole Bible. It's amazing who the guy is that God uses to give it. You are about to hear what I think is the most reasonable statement a human being will ever say from their mouth. I mean, this is the most accurate, reasonable thing that can be said about human existence, about life as we know it. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of earth, And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is quite a decree of who our God is. A dominion, an authority, a right to act that has no end. A kingdom that endures from generation to generation to generation to generation. I know you and I kind of read the small print issue of, Oh, but there was a remnant. I mean, they're almost all gone. Listen, however God chooses to do what he chooses to do, his kingdom will have no end. There will never be a person, a decision, an activity, the function of sin, that will ever cause God to come to a dead end in what he's doing. Ever. And the only way that could ever be possible is if he is sovereignly in control of the entire universe of existence. If there's a little bitty place out there that will ever surprise him, then none of this is true. Because for all we know, in that little bitty piece of the universe that God doesn't have authority over, there's an authority there that's greater than his. And his dominion will end. And his kingdom will not proceed from generation to generation. It will get cut off. And there is somebody who says, what have you done? And there is somebody who can overcome him. But we know that's not the case. Because God is sovereign. 
And that sovereignty affects how you and I feel about our life. Look at Psalm 95. It affects whether you and I are ever going to be thankful and develop an attitude of thankfulness. Psalm 95. Verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Why? For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Everything's his. He's a great God over all of creation. There's no God greater than him. The result? An attitude of singing, an attitude of joyful noise, an attitude filled with thanksgiving. See, what fuels thanksgiving in my life is a recognition of the sovereignty of God. See, when I'm genuinely aware of the sovereignty of God, it affects my outlook. It affects how I feel about my life. You know, it drives me a little bit crazy. I, I do this myself, so you're in the same category with my craziness. When we think we know what words mean, how many of us believe in the sovereignty of God? Uh-huh, I believe God's sovereign. Yeah, I believe He's sovereign. People come into counseling appointments. Sometimes it takes a few moments for them to get in the room because their face is so long. It's still out in the receptionist area, dragging in. And, you know, if you're if you're a decent counselor at some point, in some form or fashion, you're going to have to address the sovereignty of God. You have to, because this person's coming in saying this has happened. This has happened. That person did this. This person did that. This is undoable. There's no future. There's no hope. I just came to borrow a gun. You know, this is how they come in for counseling. And at some point, God's got to get back in the picture here. He's out of the frame. So somehow those circumstances have got to be interpreted through the lens of a sovereign God. So somewhere in the first few minutes of my exchange is going to be the idea of, well, you know, God is in control. God is sovereign. And, and invariably, the response that gets served back up is, I know that. I believe in the sovereignty of God. Get out. Get out of my office. <laughs> it's, it's one thing for us to say we believe in the sovereignty of God. But if you really do, if I really am convinced of the sovereignty of God, I kind of look like Psalm 95. I sing to the Lord. A joyful noise. I come with thanksgiving. People who invariably come for counseling, that's not how they come. See, because what's in question is the sovereignty of God. Did somehow I fall out of the sovereignty of God? Did you don't understand? This circumstance is really bad. I mean, it's really, really bad. This happened and that happened and this happened. And, you know, and it's almost like a cell job to convince. See, there's no way. There's no way out of this thing. Okay, but, but God is sovereign in this. See, what, what gives away whether we really believe in our hearts about the sovereignty of God is not whether we can spell the word sovereignty or even say it and pronounce it correctly. It's whether or not we sing. 
It's whether or not we're thankful. It's whether or not we walked into that counseling appointment with a little bit of a skip in our step and whistling a tune, sitting down and explaining, uh, life is a mess right now. This is going on. That's going on. This is going on. That's going on. But, you know, I've spent some time with the Lord. I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed. But, but, God, I'm grateful. I'm thankful. See, those are, that's a very different demeanor, isn't it? See, that permeating attitude of thankfulness, you don't just get it because, oh, I heard a message, I'm supposed to be thankful, so I'm going to walk out of here. Next week when I walk in, I'm just going to walk in with thankfulness all over me. No, you're not. Not unless you have contemplated why to be thankful. Given thought to a sovereign God's involvement in your life right now, this instant, this very moment. Whatever you're concerned about, whatever this week you gave your attention to, whatever picture you took of your life and studied it and knew all the details that were out of place and began to guess what the next several frames were going to look like in your life. I bet you God wasn't in those frames, was he? When we, when we start imagining the future, we, we just have a tendency. We don't imagine with thankfulness, do we? We imagine misery. It's going to get worse. I mean, it's just now. I mean, Tomorrow, I mean, I don't know where even we're going to eat. <laughs> I mean, I got these clothes, but you know, all of a sudden we're way down the road where this is horrible as it could possibly get. Because God is not sovereign in the frame of our picture. So it's just not a little doctrine. It's not just, oh, that's just for those egghead seminarian people's sovereignty. I, I can't figure all that stuff out. Listen, you want to get past kindergarten at some point in your life and live life. You better pay attention to doctrine. Because all that woe and I can't look at life and I'm so depressed and I'm scared of everything. That's a doctrinal problem. You don't see God as sovereign in your events right now. So a message about Thanksgiving, it might as well be about pumpkin pie. Because it ain't going to be about an attitude change unless you get a hold of the fact that there is a sovereign God who's working all things after the counsel of his will in your life right now where you are. Wait, this is bad. Yes. But you have a God who is governing it in sovereignty. Now, let me, let me add one more nuance to this. And this is going to be the second point here. To know that God is sovereign, I don't think quite is enough. I think I need to know how God is disposed towards me in his sovereignty. Because you realize sovereignty gives God the right to go bzz, 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 at a moment's notice. Right, he's sovereign. His dominion has no end. He has the right. Nobody can appeal and say, oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm, I would like a council of all the gods here. I'm, you, you can't just fry people at will. Get the rest of the gods around here. Let's talk. You can't do that with God, can you? God is the authority, so he can do anything he wants to do. And you and I can't appeal it at all. So recognizing that God's sovereignty might just kind of make us walk around like this. You know, is he going to get me now? Now? How? After what I said? So I need something else. Here's what I need. To be truly thankful, we must be convinced of God's favor toward us. God is sovereign. God is favorable toward us. Look in Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. That's a critical element. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It's He who made us, and we are His. 
We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. That's not just poetry. That is a critical, critical thought as to whether or not the favor of God is upon your life. Do not think because, well, you know, I'm a human being. The favor of God is on my life. That is an unbiblical thought. It's a very popular thought. As though anybody at any moment can just whistle down God and here he comes. You have a warm moment when all of a sudden you kind of want God's assistance to help you live what typically is your own selfish life. And you don't really want him to be the Lord over your life. You just want him as a consultant, kind of a sugar daddy kind of thing with God. Come help me. Uh, I got a bobo. Come step in at this moment. Wait, and the Bible doesn't teach that God's on a string for humanity. The Bible teaches that we, just like all the world, were at one time children of wrath, even as the rest. And that the, the wrath of God abides on them. So somehow we need to be able to realize this verse says something profound. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. When you come into Christ, when you get saved... You get transferred out of darkness into light, into the family of God. You are in a different relationship with God. You are in one of favor. God has chosen to remove you out of this category and place you as an object of mercy. It's interesting. Romans, ultimately, Romans 9 sticks everybody in two categories. Two types of vessels. Vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. Now, if you're in Christ, you are a vessel of the mercy of God. So God's not just sovereign. God is sovereign and he is for you. He is favorably disposed toward you. And you and I must be convinced. Enter his gates, verse 4, with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is God. Pardon me. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This, this is covenant language. This is speaking to God's people. Do you realize now, let me just throw into your mind here. There is a real place called hell where the wrath of God will be poured out forever. So when you read this verse... The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. This is not just some blanket statement you throw over all of humanity. This is the people that are his, the sheep of his pasture. You can read Psalm 103 when you get a moment there in your notes. Psalm 106, verse 1. It says, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Remember me, O Lord, in your favor toward your people. Now, when I step back from this frame, I begin to get an idea that God is in the picture. He is sovereign and he is working favorably in my life. How does God depict himself? He depicts himself toward me as good. He depicts himself toward me as a father. Look in your outline there, Hebrews chapter 12. God does a little bit of comparison here. And he almost does this through the word to saying how ridiculous of us to question God's heart toward us. God's motivation towards us. And the, and the reason that it's, there's a comparison here, it highlights the fact that you had earthly fathers. And they were motivated towards you a certain way. How much greater would God be? 
towards you. Hebrews 12, verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. What's the motive of God in relating to us? It's for our good. He has postured himself toward us as a father to do good to us all of our lives. And that same passage talks about the pain that's involved with discipline. You know, no discipline seems enjoyable for a time. Well, there's ten, that times that God's doing something good in our life that doesn't feel good. There's certain frames that we're looking at in our life where God's doing a good thing and it feels bad. And then when we take our limited intellect and we pull that into this frame as well and try and interpret it, we, we start questioning whether God could even be involved in something like that. How could this possibly be good? Maybe you and I just lack the vision of seeing enough down the road to see how it's good. The problem's not with God at all. Maybe it's with I just can't see real well. I mean, I know that there's people in the back of the building right now, but if I don't put my glasses on, I don't really know who you are. Because that's as far as I can see. You know, spiritual things in our lives, we're the same way. Things come up, we say, that's bad. No, it could be good. It could be a good father who's doing that in your life for good. Ultimately, let me give you one other category, and this is a major one. We can be thankful when we understand that he has made covenant with us. Covenant is a huge concept throughout all the Bible. It's not a not not a small thing to be. I've heard something about covenant. Well, you, you need to study covenant because it's everywhere in the Bible. And it's critical to understanding why does God relate to you and I the way he does Covenant has everything to do with this. Back up with me. Took it, turn to Genesis. Genesis, and we're going to look at a quick covenant example here so we can understand God relating to us. Remember, God approaches Abraham and makes a covenant with him. Abraham, who is an idol worshiper living in the land of Ur, God comes to him and reveals himself to him. God interrupts his day, interrupts his life. and says, here's who I am. I'm going to bless you, Abraham. Right? You know, God doesn't even sit down and wait for some terms. God, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. <clears throat> Your name will be great. You'll be a blessing to many. So that's God's decree. God makes a covenant with Abraham. There's a picture of it in Genesis 15, where God has Abraham bring these animals, and Abraham cuts the animals. God passes between the pieces in the presence of a smoking fire <clears throat> that goes between these pieces. Abraham sleeps while God does that. And that's significant. Because this covenant's not based on how well Abraham does upholding it. And the evidence for that is all throughout Abraham's life. God makes a promise. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you children. Uh, not too far after that, Abraham and Sarah are traveling. They come to Egypt. Abraham, looking out for his own hide, Turns to his wife and says, hey, look, honey, you're a good-looking woman. And when we get to Egypt, the Pharaoh's going to want you. And if he knows that I'm married to you, he's going to kill me and take you. So why don't we just pretend that we're brother and sister when we get there? Now, finish the rest of the statement here. 
That way he'll just take you. <laughs> There's a great deal, huh? <clears throat> Honey, you're going to get dragged away and become like part of a harem, but I'm going to be alive. <laughs> really? Can we work this out? You cool with that, honey? And, and this is who God's made covenant with. He doesn't do this once. He does it twice. Now, you know, a lot of times the wife really is the better half in a relationship. I'm not sure that's the case here, though. Remember, God comes one day personally, visits uh, Abraham and Sarah, and reminds Abraham of these promises that I am going to bless you. A year from now, Abraham, you are going to have a son. Sarah is behind the curtain overhearing this. She starts laughing. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm an old lady. I'm going to have pleasure and have a child. The Lord rebukes her. Now, you know, consider just for a moment the seriousness of this. God has come to visit you, you stinky little earthling. <laughs> You've served him up some earthly grub, probably tasted horrible compared to the cafeteria of heaven. And he's come just to share with you the great news. A year from now, you're going to be holding a little baby in your arms. <laughs> right. That's a good one. This is God. You know, you just laughed at God. You think. OK, think it's funny. Well, then you won't. And God just gets up and walks out. <laughs> Here you go. You know, some of us relate to God that way. We actually kind of think that. And we're we're steering God's faithfulness to us by how faithful we are. You have a God who made a covenant with Abraham, Abraham, the liar. Abraham, here, have my wife, please. <laughs> that Abraham he makes a covenant with uh, the one married to the woman who laughs at God. See, the critical thing is God says, I will bless you. I will do this. I will be favorable towards you. And let me just tell you the, the extent of God's favor. Do you remember the day when God decides the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah has risen before him and he will take no more of it. He is going to destroy this city. It's the most ungodly place on the planet. Abraham begins to intercede before God. Abraham, man in covenant with God. Man that God says, I'm favorable towards you, Abraham. Abraham begins to take advantage of that favor here. God... If there's 50 people righteous in the city, will you, will you destroy the city or will you spare the city? Uh, if there's 50 righteous, I'll spare the city. How about 40? Right? Remember the story? How about, how about 30, 20, 10? So Abraham has interceded for God's mercy to be extended in Sodom. Uh, the angels come to the city of Sodom. The men in the city, given over to their sin, I want to take the angels who are in the appearance of men and rape them. And the angels end up having to blind the men to keep this from occurring. They get locked away in Lot's house. This is a horrible place. Lot is trying to tell his relatives, the angels of the Lord are here. The city is going to be destroyed. You know what his relatives do? They laugh at him. Now, you've got to wonder why this is. The Bible doesn't give us some detail here, but you... You'd have to think, oh, look at old Lot, when got religion. Somehow, Lot has no credibility when it comes to speaking forth who God is and what God's about to do. So much so that they're laughing at him. The day comes where now is the day of destruction. And li listen to this. Verse 15 in Genesis 19. As morning dawned, 
the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot lingered. Now, now get this for a moment, because here's a man who's just been told by divine revelation, the city is going to be destroyed. This city of great sin is going to be destroyed. God's wrath is about to be revealed from heaven against unrighteousness in the destruction of this city. Come on, Lot, let's get out of here. The angels begin to go. Lot, he's got stuff here. He's got a life here. He's got friends and stuff he wants to do here. Lot, come on, let's go. Lot lingers. Lot pauses. And what you're about to see is an incredible demonstration of the mercy of God. Because what could have happened was, see you, Lot. Stay here and perish with them, too. But watch what the next verse says. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. See, remember we taught through this when we got in the Romans, you got that little mysterious verse there in Romans chapter 9 about God's purpose in election. See, God's purpose in election was that he would have someone to which he would do good to. Someone who would become the objects of his kindness. Somebody that would get out of this category over here of being a vessel of wrath and get into the category of being the objects of his favor and grace and mercy and kindness. And listen, this is how everybody comes into the kingdom. Everyone comes just like Lot, loving the world, loving their sin. Until a merciful and gracious God who is bound by his own mercy grabs us by the hand and says, you will, you will come. And he brings us into a place where we can receive his mercy. Otherwise, ain't nobody in that category. See, the entire city gets destroyed except for the ones that God goes in and handpicks and grabs by the hand and brings them out. And it says, why? Why did this happen? Because of the mercy of God. The Lord being merciful to him. Now, go a little bit further here. Verse 29 of Genesis 19. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Why did Lot get spared? Because God remembered Abraham. Because God had made a covenant with Abraham. To do good to him, to bless him, to bring favor in his life so that when that man stood and turned his face toward heaven and said, Lord, if there's any righteous in the city, would you spare them? Lot was the recipient of Abraham's relationship with God. That's what blessed him. And listen, what does this have to do with you and I? Well, that's simply in the scriptures as a type and a shadow to help us understand something else. Here's the players. You and I get to play the part of Lot. We live in the city of destruction. Our hearts are fastened together with this world. But Jesus plays the part of Abraham. 
And he actually is the one who enters into a covenant with God. If you look at the new covenant, the new covenant is actually a covenant between God the Father and God the Son. Now, it becomes, we become the beneficiaries of it because God in his mercy pulls us out of Adam and places us in Christ. See, all this language means something in the Bible. So now, simply because I'm in Christ and Christ is in covenant with God and he ever lives to make intercession for us, and you better believe God is going to bless his own son, isn't he? See, I wish I had all day. Because this is, this is great. When you start realizing God... God's dealing with you not because of how you are doing in your Christian life. You're being successful this week or not. God's dealing with his own son when he deals with you and me. God has made covenant with Jesus to be favorable always to him. And he stands and makes intercession for us before the throne of God's grace. So why does God deal in our lives with grace and mercy? Because of a covenant that exists between the Father and the Son that you and I get grafted into to become the recipients of it. So when I look at the frame of my life, listen, there is not a worse frame. I'm not trying to be unsympathetic to anybody here. There is not a worse frame in human history than the picture on the cross of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, you and I have the benefit of the scriptures. Was God out of that picture? No. He was all over that moment. He had arranged human history to bring it to that moment so that the Son of God could die for you and me. What looked like a horrible, bad thing happening was the most divine, glorious thing you and I have ever encountered, wasn't it? And it opened the covenant for you and I to be in. When you and I look at the frame of our lives and we wonder, is this good? Is God in this? This is horrible. Can I possibly be thankful for this? Yeah, I can. Because I recognize that the frame of human history that's brought me to this point, just like the one that brought Jesus to that point, is under the guidance of a sovereign God who has made a covenant pledge to do good to me. As an object of his kindness and mercy. Remember this verse in Ephesians 2. It's, it's one that slips our notice, but it needs to be one we wake up and greet the day with. This will give us a reason to be thankful. I could maybe get up early if I really read this verse carefully. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Right? No mention of us here of his love and his mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Right? He took us by the hand from the city of destruction. By grace you have been saved. You're out of that city because of the grace of God. Not because you're a smart guy like Lot. Verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And why did he do that? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
So how do you see God postured in the frame of wherever you are in your life? Not only is he sovereignly in charge of the frame, he is busy and active in it trying to figure out how to be good to you. How to be favorable to you. How to bestow riches of his kindness upon your life. And that's what he will be postured to do for the rest of eternity. He will be pouring out mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon our lives for the rest of eternity. Now, when I step back from the frame of my life, even when it looks bad, and I look at it through the lens of a God who's in it for my good, now I can be thankful. I can be thankful in suffering. I can be thankful in loss. I can be thankful in pain. I can be thankful through a season that doesn't seem to come to an end that's very difficult. I can be thankful because I see God in the frame of my life correctly. See, if you and I don't have a correct contemplation in our life, then thanksgiving really can't occur correctly. (coughs) But if I see these things correctly, then all the encouragement for me to be thankful becomes possible then, doesn't it? Matt, go ahead and come up. Let me ask Peter and and the the folks who are coming up to help out with serving communion this morning. We're going to close this morning with the celebration of communion, and I'm going to share with you why that is. These guys come get in place, and what we're going to have these guys do is they're going to come up and get the emblems and the containers and just stand across the front here this morning, and in just a moment I'm going to have you come and receive. But but let let me draw what we're about to do into this message. Sadly, what we're about to do in celebrating communion is is a lot like what many of us will do at Thanksgiving. We will go through the externals with a deficient heart. Go through all the trimmings, all the outside activity. We'll participate in communion, but with a heart that lacks what it needs to contain in it. You guys here know, how many of you heard the word Eucharist? Hold your hand up if you're familiar with the term Eucharist. If I ask you to define Eucharist, how many of y'all could define Eucharist? Okay, in this regard, you are just like the first service. 150 hands, 200 hands say yes, I've heard the term. Five, six, seven hands say yeah, I know what it means. I want to let that stick for a moment because some of us grew up in religious traditions. Some of us come out of those religious traditions, those backgrounds, and we fight for them. They're so precious to us. Can I just tell you, they're precious because they're familiar. They're not precious because they're biblically meaningful. I I grew up Catholic in the city of New Orleans here like everybody else did. I received the Eucharist every week. I couldn't have told you what it meant. Eucharist is not a Catholic word. Eucharist is a word in the Greek language. And if you take it apart, you may recognize parts of it. There's a little word right in the middle of it. Eucharist. Charis. Charis is the Greek word for grace. And interesting, when you, when you take grace... And you insert it into this other Greek word. Eucharist is the giving of thanks. 
That's what that word means in the Greek. It means thanksgiving. So when it comes to what we're about to do, for too many, this is cloaked in some kind of a mystery that's unbiblical. They know this as the Eucharist. It's almost as though this piece of bread is the Eucharist. Now, the word Eucharist is the giving of thanks. And if you understand biblically what we're about to do, communion in the context of the Bible is a covenant meal. That's what it is. It's not a, it's not a New Testament invention. It doesn't belong to a denomination. It goes back to, it goes all the way back to when goat herders were making a deal between each other. And when they'd seal that deal, they would eat a meal together. That's how old this is. But the meal serves a particular function. It is called a covenant meal of remembrance. That's what that meal really was. So when Jesus gathers them together on the last night and he says, do this in remembrance of me. They know exactly what he's talking about. You are talking about a covenant meal. Do this in remembrance of me. And what you and I are going to do here this morning is an expression of thank you to God. Because at the very center of our meal is the grace of God. It's a God who took me by the hand as a teenager and brought me out of a city of destruction. And he didn't just save me from hell. He set me in heavenly places so that forever I could be the object of his mercy and his kindness. And since that's the case, doesn't it make it appropriate that what we're about to eat is a thank you meal? It's a response of gratitude to God. So what I want you to do uh, to come receive, and again, I want to just put this clarifier. This is a covenant meal, and it's for all those who are in covenant with God. That's who it's for. And if I'm not in covenant with God, this is not a meal for me. If I'm not in Christ, if I've not trusted Christ to save me from my sin by His grace, surrendered my life to Him, then this meal has no meaning for me. And I really shouldn't participate in it. I should stop and consider what's holding me back. Why am I unwilling to take the hand of the one who wants to seize my hand and pull me out of destruction and bring me into His grace and into His kindness and into mercy for the rest of my life? Why am I not willing to do that? But for all those who have received the grace of God and been saved, this is a meal of remembrance and of thankfulness. So if you are in that category, I want to invite all of you to come partake of this meal together. So can I ask you just to begin just come fill up the middle aisle here and then come through the middle. Receive, go all the way down the lines if you need to get served. There's many guys here. And then, then go around the edges and go back to your seats that way.
I see. I come with your righteousness, Lord, my humble offering to bring the judgments of your holy Savior's obedience and blood hide.